recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 28th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Perhaps tonight's program should be subtitled, Luther Hands German Women Over to Jewry. That may be a little harsh, but it is indeed true to a great extent, as we shall see. So far in this series of presentations, there are two avenues of investigation which have proven to be worth pursuing, but have so far been elusive. And we hope that we, through further study, hope, hope to come to viable conclusions by the, end of these, by the end of this series. The first is the Jewish role in the Renaissance, where things such as nudity in art and acceptance of usury became popular in Italy. There were Jews in Italy before the Inquisition, and there were conversal Jews in Italy long before the Inquisition. But they appeared in much larger numbers after the influx of Portuguese and Spanish Muranos in the middle of the 16th century. These Murano Jews did not play a significant role in the early stages of the Reformation. However, later on, the Jesuits do play a larger role in what is called the Counter-Reformation. That leads to the second avenue, which is the nature of the Murano Jewish role in the founding of the Jesuits, which is highly arguable. However, candid academic sources are elusive, and at least many of the alternative sources which claim to reveal these things are actually based on very thin evidence. Additionally, there is much Jewish propaganda denying the Jewish role in all of these events. Before the end of the series, I hope to cover those two avenues. For now, this is Martin Luther in Life and Death, Part 10, Luther Declares War. In our last segment of these presentations, we saw that with the promises of military support which were offered to him by the German knights, Franz Sickingen and Sylvester von Schomburg, Martin Luther was emboldened, even to the point of declaring war against the papacy. With this, we may feel the urge to jump ahead and get to the more exciting parts of this history, but then we would skip over the more important lessons which are found in the investigation of the motivations of individuals that lie behind the actual historical events. Taking the slow route and examining the details, we shall indeed uncover at least many of the motives behind Martin Luther and the other men who led the Reformation and founded at least some of the varieties of the Protestant faith. We left our author with his comments concerning Martin Luther's address to the Christian nobility of the German nation which he made in August of 1520, where he had concluded that with unsparing energy, Luther endeavored to stir up German national feeling against Italy and in favor of his own cause. According to him, the Italians were steeped in every kind of vice, and yet so proud and haughty that they looked upon the Germans as scarcely human. 
Luther's address to the German nobility was a martial summons to the fiercest onslaught. Now we shall continue with our primary reference for these presentations. The History of the German People at the Close of the Middle Ages by Johannes Janssen, Volume 3, Book 5, published in London in 1900 in English. From the bottom of page 123, we shall begin where the author is referring to Luther's address to the Christian nobility of the German nation. And he says, simultaneously with this address, Luther published, with an accompanying marginal commentary, a pamphlet that had been written against him by Sylvester Priarius on the Pope as an infallible teacher. In the preface to this pamphlet, he calls Pontifical Rome a synagogue of Satan's, congratulates the Greeks and the Bohemians who had served themselves, who had severed themselves from the Romish Babylon, and execrates all who have any connection with Rome. Go to now, unhappy reprobate, godless man. May God's wrath overtake you as you richly deserve, quoting Luther himself. In the epilogue, he throws out a distinct challenge to a war of religion. If the madness of the Romanists goes on like this, he says, there seems to me no other way of escape than for the emperor, the kings and the princes to have recourse to arms, to make them ready for battle to declare war against this pest of the universe and to bring the matter to an issue not with words, but with iron and steel. If we punish thieves with the halter, murderers with the sword, heretics with the stake, why do we not still more chastise with every weapon we can lay hands on? These teachers of corruption, these cardinals, these popes, and all the crawling vermin of this Romish Sodom, who go on unceasingly corrupting, degrading, ruining the Church of God. Why do we not wash our hands in their blood? Now, according to an article on the Reformation found at the website belonging to the Concordia Seminary, I believe it's in Missouri, Sylvester Priarius was a Dominican monk who began writing against Luther during the Indulgences controversy in 1518. We will quote from the article because it gives a good insight into the attitude of many defenders of the Roman Catholic Church at that time and even today. And they say that Priarius was drafted into the early Reformation conflict while serving in Leo X's court, the Medici Pope. After receiving a copy of Luther's 95 Theses and obtaining a verdict from the faculty at Mainz concerning the thesis, Albrecht von Hohenzollern, meaning Albrecht the Bishop of Mainz, sent an official request to Rome for an investigation of Luther's teachings. As part of the due process, Leo had canonist Jerome Ginucci draft a letter summoning Luther to Rome for a hearing and ordered Priarius to provide a theological critique of the thesis. 
Priarius was not unfamiliar with Wittenberg. Being present when Luther's own teacher, Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt, who was actually a more radical reformer than Luther, underwent a 1516 public disputation in Rome to earn his doctorate in civil and canon law. Afterward, the two, Karlstadt and Priarius, had a terse exchange over the role of scripture in the debate that would suggest the later conflict with Luther. In 1518, Priarius wrote his Dialogues of the Power of the Pope, which set out a general critique of Luther's arguments against the theology behind the indulgences. Like Johann Tetzel and Johann Eck, Priarius embodied the common attempt of Luther's rivals to shift the debate toward church, toward church authority rather than focusing solely on the question of indulgences. He argued that Luther's theses were methodologically unclear, then offered a fourfold set of principles drawn from the Thomistic tradition, Thomistic named after Thomas Aquinas, for proceeding with debate. The Roman Church and the papacy were equivalent with the universal church. I don't know where the word universal is in, in the New Testament either, but that's okay. Neither the Roman Church, the papacy, nor a rightly constituted council can err theologically. In other words, they are all infallible. Anyone who disagrees with the infallible proclamations of the Roman Church, the papacy, or a council is a heretic, and this judgment extends to both official teachings and official practices. The last of the four would prove the most pivotal to the, ensu the, most pivotal to the ensuing debate. And continuing for a moment from page 124 of our source, for such outbursts of unbridled passion, there is but one explanation, which we find in some of his confidential utterances to his friends. In a letter to Johann Lange on August 18, 1520, Luther wrote that against the papacy, the seat of the real, veritable Antichrist, he considered every possible mode of attack permissible for the sake of the salvation of souls. And Lange, as a humanist who lectured on Pliny under the name Joaquim Camariaris, had studied surgery with Prince Carpi in Italy. Carpi was actually an adversary of the Italian humanists. He was better known, Lange was better known for his career in medicine, however, than for anything else. And our author says that the fury of his enemies, speaking of Luther, the fury of his enemies, he said in another letter, was so great that he was no longer master of himself and was impelled by he knew not 
what manner of spirit it was. Luther seemed to be implying that he was guided by a divine spirit, but in a letter that our author is about to present, his opponent, Hieronymus Amser, will suggest otherwise. Amser is a member of the court of Duke George of Saxony, another constant correspondent of Luther's. The, human, the humanist priest Spalatin, whose real name was George Burkhardt, was a secretary, librarian, court chaplain, and tutor for Frederick III, elector of Saxony, a man who would figure prominently in Luther's life and success a little later on. So this answer works for another nobleman from Saxony. And continuing from page 125, Emser is actually chastising Luther. Your overbearing temper, wrote Hieronymus Emser, court chaplain and secretary of Duke George of Saxony to Luther, his former friend. Your overbearing temper cannot brook that anyone should contradict you by speech or by pen. Let you listen to no one allows no one to know better than you. For this reason, it cannot verily be the Spirit of the Lord, but must be some other spirit. For as the prophet says, the Spirit of the Lord dwells with none but the humble-minded, the lowly, and the peaceable. Now it is everywhere notorious that you, like a wild and tempestuous sea, neither by day nor night have any rest and peace for yourself and will not allow other people to be at rest. But as waves dash up against the ships, so you rub yourself up now against this person, now against that, and are always seeking whom you may quarrel with. By my faith as a priest, and answer was also a priest, in place of an oath, I say, I have never conceived in my heart hatred or envy against your person, but only against your presumptuous behavior to our mother, the holy Christian church, against your false doctrines and your perverse interpretations of the scriptures, which are contrary to all Christian teaching. Against these I am and ever shall be incensed so much more so much the more as from day to day. The more you spin, the coarser your thread becomes. I have now three times warned you, answer to Luther, three times warned you as a brother and entreated you for the love of God to spare and have pity upon this poor nation which is growing visibly irritated by this business. And you answer me at last with words, let the devil have his way. The matter was not begun for the love of God, and it shall be ended for the love of God. Now, this reflects, in my opinion, the two-edged sword of prophet of God versus perception of man. Not saying that Luther was a prophet. The ancient Judahites threw Jeremiah into prison because he said things that they didn't like, but they certainly did come from God. Countless other supposed prophets of God turned out to be wicked frauds. 
Luther seems to have sincerely believed that he was indeed a messenger of God, if not a prophet, and seemed to, for that reason, speak with insolence towards his fellows who disagreed with him. Would anyone convince an Isaiah or a Jeremiah that they were wrong? Would not, we would not put Luther on their level or any other man. However, legitimate conviction must come from Scripture. Emser appeals to the humble-minded as messengers of God. The humble-minded are men willing to listen to the Scripture. Luther believed he had scripture on his side, and therefore he thought he could do no wrong. He actually got a lot wrong, but he didn't think he could do wrong. <laughs> Excuse me. Like Emser, Luther's other friend, Spalatin, urged Luther not to go to war against the papacy. But when Luther decided to go to war, Spalatin supported his friend. Spalatin was the secretary to the elector of Saxony, Frederick III. Emser was the secretary to Duke George. Emser, in 1521, took the opposite route. He published an attack on Luther's appeal to the German nobility, and he continued to impose him to oppose him, I'm sorry, until he died in 1527. Continuing with our source from page 125, at the end of the year 1520, Emser writes that the time of the visitation of the German people has now come. Worthy Germans, he says, God is visiting and proving each one of you in order to see how steadfast and loyal each of you will remain to the holy faith and to the Christian church. Mistaking the Roman Catholic Church for a Christian church, in our opinion. Hitherto, praise be the Germans in this forevermore. It has never come to pass that any single German emperor, king, prince, or community, after having once acknowledged the Christian faith, has fallen away from it again, or become heretical like the princes, kings, and emperors of other nations, who have often let themselves be so miserably seduced by heretics that they have become renegades to the faith of Christ, and have worshipped gods that are no gods, have destroyed churches and monasteries, have persecuted, driven out, and slain priests, bishops, and popes, one here, another there, as the Chronicles credibly show and answer is being highly dishonest. Furthermore, whole provinces, empires, and kingdoms have sometimes, in a time of their visitation, been led away from the holy faith through curious prying into new doctrines and obstinate persistence in their sins. The two largest quarters of the world, Asia and Africa, have withdrawn from the Roman dominion and church so that scarcely any Christians are to be found there. And in the third quarter, Europe, no small number have followed this example. And now the turn has come for us Germans, as indeed was foretold many years ago 
that in these, our days, a monk would lead the germination into great errors, as in truth, Christ himself has warned us generally that wolves would come among us in sheep's clothing. Now, we do not know what supposed prophecy Emser is citing here, but he takes great liberties. Emser is obviously a papist who, like Prierius, insists that the Roman Catholic Church is the only legitimate Christian church, something which is quite contrary to Scripture. And then he insists on the infallibility of the popes and their councils, which is also quite contrary to Scripture. Here, Amser is spitting history for the purpose of propaganda. It is true that China expelled Franciscan missionaries in the 14th century, and the Catholics did not again have a presence in China for 300 years, as if they belonged there, right? But China was never under Roman dominion. Neither was the Near East, although there were Christians there before the Islamic conquests. So by Asia, Amser must be referring to the formerly Christian worlds of Anatolia and the Middle East, which along with North Africa were lost to the conquests of the Arabs and the Turks. But they were not lost to princes who voluntarily withdrew from Christianity. That only happened in Europe with the Greeks and with the Hussites, with the Bohemians. In fact, Africa and the Middle East were hardly under the dominion of Roman popes. Since the papacy, as it was later known, did not come into being until the time of Justinian, and those lands were lost within a hundred years of Justinian. They may have been under the dominion of the Byzantine emperors, but were never under the dominion of the Catholic bishops of Rome. But perhaps the papist answer sees the papacy as an extension of Roman imperialism. Now with that, we would agree. But Africa and the Near East and the Middle East were never under the popes of Rome because the popes of Rome never had the power in the ancient world that they have in the time of Emser. He's just spinning history. The typical, the, the lies typical of Roman Catholics in order to legitimize current Catholic power or to, as they do today, lie in order to attempt to reassert that power. Continuing with page 127 of our source and Emser's letter to Luther, and now, whereas openly in the daytime, with all vehement earnestness and purpose, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, has dared and presumed for a long time, through much strange and novel teaching, disputation, preaching, and writing, to throw contempt on the chief overseers and prelates of the church, to give free license to sin, thereby to gain over the common people and make the germination independent of the Roman church. There is verily cause for fear that this man is not far removed from that one, or perhaps is the very same, whom 
the prophecies had foretold against whom Christ and the apostles warned us. And of course, Luther's making those same claims of the papacy. Luther's proceedings, it was, in, it was asserted, were entirely opposed to gospel teaching. For the gospel, answer, quoting answer, for the gospel teaches us that in no case, even if they have sinned, are we to allow our prelates to be put to open shame, scourging, and disgrace. Furthermore, it is contrary to the natural as well as to the statute rights of emperors who are enjoined to inflict capital punishment for sins of this sort and contempt of majesty. The gospel nowhere teaches us that we ought to stir up such discord, tumult, and division among the people. Cyprian says, Whosoever disturbs the peace of Christ and the concord of the people of God is not with Christ, but against him. Neither does the gospel say that we ought to despise the commandments, ordinances, and opinions of the church and oppose them with such sacrilege, and still less that we ought to cause scandal and vexation to anyone. And here's the appropriated church defended by a supposed traditionalist. The gospel says that we are not to despise the commandments and ordinances of God. But the same gospel says that man should study the scriptures and come to his own opinion, as it says in the Acts of the Berians, that they receive the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. They weren't looking things up in church canon law. And as Paul had assured the Corinthians, not for that we have dominion over your faith. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. There is no such church in the gospel which forms its own commandments, ordinances, and opinions and holds men to them. It's just not there. In this manner, does the Roman church attempt to replace the God of Scripture with itself? And the wicked substitution is clear to anyone who reads the gospel honestly. The Catholic traditionalists are not defending Christian tradition. Rather, they are defending the traditions of an empirical Rome, which have merely been adorned with Christian decoration. Continuing from the bottom of page 127. But what has ever been more scandalous, injurious, poisonous to the German nation than Luther's teaching, books and writings, which in so short a time have occasioned such quarreling, tumult, and uproar that there is no province, town, village, or house which is not torn by party spirit and where people are not divided one against the other. And this is not for a trifling cause, but for the sake of the holy Christian faith, which our forefathers handed down to us and which they served so steadily and loyally by deeds rather than words. Well, it depends on what generation you want to go back to, but each succeeding generation from the apostles 
moved a little further away from the teachings of the apostles. The Christian faith and the Catholic tradition are two different things. We can only wonder if Catholic traditionalists actually ever studied the scriptures. If all men studied the scriptures, they would find much more to agree upon, and they would all reject Catholicism. Lutheran humanists had legitimate complaints, even if they were not being made for entirely legitimate motives, as we shall ultimately see, and as we've already seen, because we've seen that the humanists were only pagans, and to a great extent lascivious and licentious men who used Luther, who were using Luther to undermine empirical church authority. Once they undermine empirical church authority, they can have their way with a very divided Germany. Luther, said Emser, brought forth his errors, not from his own storehouse, but from the books of his models and examples, Wycliffe and Huss. It was from them that he learned to call the Pope Antichrists, Christians, Romanics, Romanists, and heretics, Christians, and to reject the Holy Sacraments, the Mass, the consecration of priests, and all Christian ritual and ordinances. He despised all church authority, all the doctrines of the fathers, and referred each one for himself to the Holy Scriptures. But if every fanatic were to interpret the scriptures according to his own taste, the Bible would have more meanings than there were heads to the hydra, and there would never be any agreement in the matter. Through the rejection and contempt of all church ordinances and authority, the fear of God would be extinguished in the land, and what manner of obedience would be yielded to the secular ruler, every honest man, could decide for himself. And Answer's arguments here are not legitimate. None of the holy sacraments, so-called holy sacraments, the ritual of mass, the consecration of priests, and all of the Christian ritual to which he refers, none of those things are found in the New Testament. And this would be a challenge to the Romanists to show us the term Christian priest in the writings of of the church fathers before Eusebius, because I have not been able to find them, not in, just in modern, not in Clement of Rome, not in Tertullian, not in any of the early Christian writers before the time of Eusebius. So the term Christian priest seems to have come into vogue not until Christianity was tolerated in the empire and pagan priests started giving up their pagan statues and renaming their temples after saints. The Roman church picked and chose among the doctrines of the fathers because many of them did not proscribe these things. In fact, Luther did not even proscribe these things which Emser says that he would deny. Huss probably did. Wycliffe did. But Luther didn't. 
He maintained, his Lutheran church maintained most of these things, the mass, the ordained priests, the rituals. But the Roman Catholic Church picked and chose among the doctrines of the fathers because many of the earliest Christian writers did not agree or endorse or, or, or describe all of these things as being Christian. The model which the apostles left was one of independent community, assemblies governed by scripture which regulated themselves and which both coexisted and acknowledged secular authority. That was the model which the churches lived under from the time of Constantine unto the time of Justinian, when the emperor and the bishop of Rome took it upon themselves to create the papacy, to set the bishop of Rome over all of the other Christian bishops. The papacy is not traditional Christianity. The papacy as we know it really did not exist until the time of Justinian. Justinian's novels, number 130. It's there because that's when it becomes fact. If it was already a fact that the Bishop of Rome had hegemony above the other Christian bishops, then Justinian would not have needed to make it a law. There were two assertions, back to our author and his letter from Emser. There were two assertions of Luther's which were most especially subversive of all order and discipline. Christ has made us free from all the laws of man, and, call it what you will, what has been decreed by man is the work of man, and naught that is good can ever come of it. The liberty, says Answer, on which Luther insists, St. Peter calls a cloak of maliciousness, and that's not true. Peter said, do not use your liberty for a cloak for maliciousness. The maliciousness he was talking about was sin against the commandments of God, not against, not disobedience to some pope. And St. Paul, an occasion of sin, and, of course, that's not true either. One must not thus utterly despise the works of men or speak of them so indiscreetly before the common people as to say that never at any time did or could any good come of what was decreed or ordained by men, nor any good could ever result therefrom. For what would King Charles or any future council of state be able to accomplish for a reformation or for opinions and ordinances if we approach them with the assertion that from their laws no good thing could at any time proceed. Reforms were urgently needed, but Luther was not agitating for the reform of abuses and scandals, but for the sweeping away of the church itself for the uprooting of its divine foundation. And if his scheme succeeded there, would be anarchy among all classes. In the church and in society, such as had followed in Bohemia from the agitation of the Hussites. And here Emser admits reforms were needed, but he doesn't quantify them. Emser had written in opposition to Luther regarding the indulgences dispute. 
And of course, Luther had hoped for reform throughout the entire indulgence dispute. But his petitions had been rejected and the indulgences upheld. The upholding of indulgences, which are absolutely contrary to Scripture on so many levels, was justified only, as we have seen here, by Amser as well as his predecessors, on the claims of the infallibility of the popes. With that mentality, there is no end to the crimes which the popes may perpetrate. That is tyranny, and it is certainly not Christianity. On another point, Amser does have a legitimate complaint, where Luther believed that Christ has made us free from all the laws of man, which by itself is not entirely accurate and may be contrary to the Gospels and the Apostles, depending on how the individual wants to interpret it. Actually, Christians are free from the law as long as they are obedient to Christ and nevertheless should not resist the appropriate worldly authorities. That's what the Gospel teaches. Continuing from the bottom of page 129, Open your eyes, he writes imploringly to Luther, and behold the wretched misery, heresy, error, degradation, destruction, and murder of God's worshiping glory, which has come upon the Bohemians through the teaching of Huss, a noble kingdom laid waste, ruined, and disgraced as the people themselves feel more and more. And this argument is false. The kingdom of the Bohemians was only laid waste because of the papal brutality in the Roman wars against it. See that you do not bring us Germans into a plight such as that into which Huss led the Bohemians, for it would almost seem as if you were sparing no trouble and turning all your energies to bring things to this pass. God preserve us from your ideas. This is the end of our author's record of Emser's letter, and it seems to be nearly prophetic because Germany would indeed suffer the same papal brutality which the Bohemians had already suffered. And our author says, after the long and mature deliberations, a papal bull was completed on June 15, 1520, which condemned 24 statements of doctrine contained in Luther's writings, ordered the destruction of the books in which they occurred, and directed that Luther himself, after an interval of 60 days allowed him for recantation, should be delivered up to the full severity of ecclesiastical punishment. After the pattern of the divine mercy, which does not will the death of the sinner, but rather that he should repent and live, we have resolved, said the Pope, this is the de Medici Pope, Leo X, who died about 18 months later. And he was only four, just, he was only just about to turn 46 years old. Disregarding the insults against ourselves and this apostolic chair, that's an insult, to use the utmost clemency as much as lies in our power to do everything to induce the brother Martin by gentle methods, 
like burning at the stake, to repent and to renounce his errors by the depths of the divine compassion and by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which he shed for the human race and for the foundation of our holy church, we exhort and conjure the brother Martin himself as also all his followers and supporters that they do desist from further disturbing the peace, unity, and truth of the church for which the Savior has prayed so earnestly that they do renounce their corrupting heresies. It should go without saying that the so-called truth of the church is certainly not the truth of the scriptures. But perhaps the church itself even admitted this in the very papal bull which our author describes here. The bull of Pope Leo X, issued June 15, 1520, was titled Condemning the Errors of Martin Luther. And it, too, is very revealing concerning the attitudes and the errors of the Catholic Church. We're not going to read the entire bull here. It's quite long. We will post it or post access to it along with the notes to this podcast when it's completed at our website. This um, For our purposes here, we will only read the opening paragraphs, and then we'll read a few points made against Luther. And the bull begins by saying, Arise, O Lord, and judge your own cause. I don't know if by Lord they mean the Pope or some Jesus. Remember your reproaches to those who are filled with foolishness all through the day. Listen to our prayers, for foxes have arisen seeking to destroy the vineyard whose winepress you alone have trod. When you were about to ascend to your father, you committed the care, rule, and administration of the vineyard, an image of the triumphant church, to Peter as the head of your vicar and his successors. The wild boar from the forest seeks to destroy it, and every wild beast feeds upon it. Rise, Peter, and fulfill this pastoral office divinely entrusted to you as mentioned above. So Leo is being called Peter, symbolically. That's pretty disgraceful. Give heed to the cause of the Holy Roman Church, mother of all churches and teacher of the faith whom you, by the order of God, have consecrated by your blood. Against the Roman church, you warned, lying teachers are rising. I don't remember the words Roman church in the gospel. Lying teachers are rising, introducing ruinous sects and drawing upon themselves speedy doom. Their tongues are fire, a restless evil, full of deadly poison, They have bitter zeal, contention in their hearts, and boast and lie against the truth. Actually, part of that's a paraphrase of Paul, but Paul was talking about the Romans. He wasn't talking about anybody else. The effrontery of the language is even worse than that, as well as its pomposity. But since it is quite lengthy, we shall omit it here. The copy of the bull available to us in English has 41 points of contention with Luther. Perhaps our author's 24 is referring to points of Luther's writing 
that these 41 points contend with, so there's really no discrepancy. Much of it is based on the disagreements found in the indulgences dispute. The first point reads, it is a heretical opinion, but a common one, that the sacraments of the new law give pardoning grace to those who do not set up an obstacle. So it's a heresy if you believe that you have grace in Christ. The third point reads, the inflammable sources of sin, even if there be no actual sin, delay a soul departing from the body from entrance into heaven. And by that, they begin to set up their contention over this imagined purgatory state. Of course, these ideas are entirely contrary to Scripture. Then it has a strange statement in point 34, where it says, To go to war against the Turks is to resist God who punishes our iniquities through them. As if the Pope believed that the Muslim faith was better for Christians than the Christian faith. That's pretty incredible. Even stranger is point 37, since the entire idea of indulgences hinged on the existence of a state of purgatory, which the first few points in this papal bull certainly do uphold. But it says, purgatory cannot be proved from sacred scripture, which is in the canon. So they admit that purgatory can, it cannot be proved to exist. But so many of the other points in this papal bull require the existence of a purgatory. So that's pretty incredible that they even admitted that. There are other apparent contradictions. However, for now, we shall return to our source narrative from the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages, volume 3, from page 130. By a grievous error of judgment, Luther's opponent, Eck, Johann Eck, was entrusted with the proclamation of the bull and the execution of its sentence as regarded Luther's partisans in several of the German dioceses. In Leipzig, where the bull was to be posted up, Eck was in danger of his life from the Wittenberg students, and in Erfurt, Erfurt was the epicenter of humanism in the universities of Germany. And in Erfurt, the fury and violence of the young academicians were equally uncontrollable. All existing copies of the obnoxious decree were carried off from the bookshops and either torn up or thrown into the river Gera. When the news spread that Eck was coming to Erfurt, armed students went forth to meet him. To Luther himself, it made no difference who was selected to proclaim the bull, for he had been firmly resolved ever since 1519 to break forever with the papal chair and the Catholic Church. In his treatise on the Babylonian captivity of the church, Babylonish actually, he had once more represented the Pope as Antichrist. He had rejected the doctrines of the sevenfold number of the holy sacraments and of the sacred mass. 
and at the same time by novel views concerning marriage, had attacked the recognized basis of the Christian family. He not only robbed marriage of its sacramental character, but removed, and this is important, we're going to address this, that this is very important, He not only robbed marriage of its sacramental character, but removed the prohibition of marriage between Christians and non-Christians. With regard to certain circumstances of married life, he laid down principles unheard of before in Christian Europe. Already at that time, he put forward the same views which he expressed at a later date in a German Sermon on Married Life, in the following words, know then that marriage is an outward matter, like any other worldly transaction, just as I might eat, drink, sleep, walk, ride, buy, talk, and do business with a heathen, a Jew, a Turk, a heretic. So also may I marry any of them. Do not give heed to the fool's law, which forbids this. These are the words of Martin Luther. One finds plenty of Christians who are more hardened in unbelief inwardly, the greater part of them indeed, than any Jew, heathen, Turk, or heretic. A heathen is just as much a man or a woman created by God as St. Peter, St. Paul, and St. Lucia. Be silent then, thou false, mischievous Christian. The Reformation 500 years, now, 500 years later needs a reformation. We should be appalled that Luther was advocating the intermarriage between Christians and non-Christians in 16th century Germany. In Luther's Germany, European pagans were a thing of the past. And this would only serve to allow for marriages between Christians and Jews, with all of its many faults, for a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church had at least guarded against this. When Paul of Tarsus advised the Corinthian Christians that they should endeavor to stay married to unbelieving spouses, it was because they were new to Christianity and they were already married to pagans of their own kind. Paul would not have recommended that Christians seek pagan or Jewish spouses if they were already Christians and not yet married. In fact, Paul told those same Corinthians in that same epistle, that if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. And we know the meaning of maranatha, but we won't argue that point here. Except for the word maranatha, that is the way Martin Luther rendered the same verse in his own translation of the New Testament made in 1545. And he must have known very well what the Greek word anathema meant. It is telling that even in 1545, he did not render the word in German. Or at least that's the earliest 
I'm sorry, I have a slight technical issue. There we go. I yanked my cables out. 1545 is the oldest copy of a Luther Bible I could access. I understand that Martin Luther died around that time. If he could have done a better job rendering the verse, I'm certain that the 1545 version of his Bible would have reflected it. It must be questioned why Luther would have condoned the intermarriage between Christians and non-Christians in medieval Germany. It could only have been to satisfy the Jews. There's no other reason possible. Perhaps that is also why, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, when he translated the Luther Bible, and he saw that word anathema, he did not render it as verflucht, which is the German word for accursed. That's what anathema means. Then he rendered maranatha in a rather strange way, as maharam motha. Words very unlike the original of any Greek manuscript, as if he received some sort of inside information from a Jewish commentator or something. The rendering of that particular word merits further investigation we simply can't do here. But in any event, omitting Maranatha, Paul clearly said in Romans chapter 16, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, that if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. And that admonishment was clearly aimed at Jewry. The Apostle John said that anyone who so much as greets a denier of Christ is a partaker in his evil works. So Luther advocates Christian intermarriage with Jews. And that fact, as well as his league with the humanists, who were protectors of Jewish literature, reveals to us, at least, the Jewish influences behind Luther's actions. This is inexcusable. Luther could not have understood the biblical meaning of the word fornication in the first place, or perhaps he was not concerned with it, and he certainly neglected to understand the Christian rejection of Jews expressed by the apostles, when he should certainly have understood them. With this, there are glimpses of the real influences behind Martin Luther, which come out later in his essay on the Jews and their lives, since he consistently quoted Jews, converso Jews, as authorities on Scripture. The Reformation was kosher in a lot of respects. And we will talk about that more here in the months to come. To return to our source on page 131, after the proclamation of the bull, Luther appeared, appealed on November 17, 1520, from the Pope as from an unjust judge, a stiff-necked, erring heretic, and apostate 
condemned by all the writings of scriptures to a general council of Christians and called upon the emperor and the princes and the whole commonwealth to withstand the unchristian proceedings and the monstrous sacrilege of the Pope. Whoever submitted to the Pope, he, Martin Luther, delivered up to the divine tribunal. Never once since the creation of the world, he said in a letter to Spalatin, had Satan spoken out so shamelessly against God as in this bowl. It was impossible that anyone could be saved who either supported it or did not fight against it. I have come to the conviction, he wrote to another friend, that nobody can be saved who does not, with all his might, make war to the death against the statutes and mandates of the Pope and the bishops, starting from his accustomed premise that his his teaching alone was the truth, he said, among other things, in a treatise against the bull of the Antichrist. I have always held that whoever sets error above the truth denies God and worships the devil. And that is what this most precious and famous bull tries to compel us to do with threats of interdict. Who could wonder if the princes, nobles, and laity were to knock the pope, bishops, priests, and monks on the head and drive them all out of the country? Is it not an unheard of an outrageous thing in Christendom that Christian people should be publicly commanded to deny and condemn the truth and to destroy it by fire. Is it not heretical, false, scandalous, misleading, insufferable stuff for all Christian ears? But now all things are turned upside down, and I hope it has become manifest that the Pope, bishop, priests, and monks are ringing their own death knell and not Dr. Luther's with this wicked and scandalous bull, and summoning the laity to cut their own throats. The bull deserves that all true-hearted Christians should trample it underfoot and send the Romish Antichrist and Dr. Eck, his apostle, about their business with fire and sword. Now here Luther really betrays his massive ego, where he said, I have come to the conviction that nobody can be saved who does not with all his might make war to the death against the statutes and mandates of the Pope and bishops, simply because he himself has declared that war. That attitude was apparent in his past writings and is consistent throughout his subsequent writings as well. But his humanist compatriots certainly helped to encourage his ego. Returning to page 133 of our source, simultaneously with this Lutheran storm, Ulrich von Hutten also broke out in revolutionary proceedings. The axe already is laid to the roots, he wrote in a pamphlet addressed to all free men in Germany in May 1520. And every tree shall be cut down that beareth not good fruit. The vineyard of the Lord shall be cleansed. This is no longer a thing you may hope for. You will soon see it with your own eyes. 
Meanwhile, be of good heart, ye men of Germany, and encourage each other to good cheer. Your leaders are not weak and inexperienced, but strong for the recovery of freedom. On his return home from his journey to the court of the Archduke Ferdinand, whom he had endeavored without success to win over for the great cause against Rome, Hutton learned that a papal brief had been sent to the Archbishop of Mayence, and joining the later to put a stop to Hutton's presumptuous and dangerous agitations, and, if necessary, to use strong measures against him. Hutton was actually employed for several years in the court of Archbishop Albrecht of, of Mainz and had actually gotten Erasmus, as we learned recently, to let him step out of his position while continuing to collect his salary so that he could wage war against the Pope. Here the Pope writes the Archbishop of Mainz, demanding Hutton from him basically. This brief threw Hutton into the greatest fury and fanned his dreams of a sacerdotal war into fiery determination. Hutton has written me letters, says Luther to his friend Spalatin on September 11, 1520, which breathes fury against the Pope. He intends now he writes to combat priestly tyranny with all his weapons of ink and steel. The Pope is pursuing him with dagger and poison and has ordered the Archbishop of Mainz to take him prisoner and send him in chains to Rome. Luther says in a later letter to Spalatin, October 3rd, Hutton is arming against the Pope with indomitable spirit and is fighting it out with his sword and his wit. As we observed in our last presentation, Hutton had gone to the court of Maximilian in Brussels, who was the brother of Emperor Charles V, hoping to gain support for Luther's Reformation. Instead, he had fled a fugitive, and here it is clear that he remains one. Hutton's new campaign is one of constant flattery towards Charles V, making every last-ditch attempt to win the emperor over to his cause. But it never bears fruit. From page 134, Hutton's wit had its fling in September 1520 in several printed letters which he addressed from Ebernburg, the chief stronghold of his friend Sickingen, to the emperor Charles, the elector Frederick of Saxony, and all the estates of the empire. His cause, he said in the first letter, was the cause of the emperor. It was only on account of his imperialist views that he was persecuted by Rome. Charles was appointed by Providence. He's really sucking up to Charles here. Charles was appointed by Providence to destroy the dominion of the Pope, which was a disgrace to the German nation. He openly confessed to the emperor that he had contemplated a complete subversion of the existing order of things. Rome, the great Babylon, the mother of all the most execrable in human deeds of the universe, 
Rome, which has poisoned and corrupted the whole earth, he says in his letter to Frederick of Saxony. Rome must be overthrown. Can his tyranny be allowed to go on growing worse? Must it not be stamped out? But who is to achieve this consummation? God Almighty, none other than God himself, but through the instrumentality, as always, of human hands. And what part will you take, you princes and lords? What counsel and support will you contribute? He then appeals to the princes to come to the help of himself and his confederates against this many-horned savage beast, or otherwise, so he threatens, he will find some other remedy for the disease. And of course, the reference is to Revelation chapter 13. And there were reformers as early as the 14th century who understood that that described the papacy, at least in part. In Rome, in olden times, Cato the Elder had said that the rulers and officers who might prevent evil and who did not do so ought to be stoned to death. Now, Cato's usually enemy, and the object of his vitriol was the Carthaginians. And Hutton starts to spin history here, as we will see, just like Emser spun history in support of his own cause. It's not likely that Cato would have advocated stoning, a punishment not commonly used in Rome. I would be surprised. And he goes on to say, the present issue could not be settled without slaughter and bloodshed. Desperate diseases require desperate remedies. So it must be, in this case, no other means will serve. If the emperor wishes it, we will give back Rome to him, and the Roman bishop shall be put on an equality with other bishops. The number of the clergy must be reduced by 1%. That's a pretty modest request. And the monastic orders entirely done away with. His address to Germans of all classes, in which he again vividly depicted the Romish master craftsmen in the deceit, the fountain of all roguery, concluded with these words from one of the Psalms, let us rend their fetters asunder and cast away their cords from us. Now the minimal reforms here which Hutton calls for seem to hardly make a difference beyond the demotion of the papacy itself. But the de demolition of the monastic orders would indeed have a great impact on the average community, especially on the universities, because that's where the teachers came from. However, the result would be a much greater localized control and a return of much greater autonomy to the princes and the nobles. It seems that by framing reform in this manner, Hutton was attempting to simply attract the support of the princes and of Charles V. When Luther received, through Crotus Rubianus, these firebrand letters of Hutton's, he wrote to Spalatin, I am beginning to believe that this hitherto irresistible pontificate may really be overturned, contrary to all expectation, or that the day of judgment is at hand. 
Luther had a very high opinion of themselves. On December 5th, 1520, Crotus had again addressed himself to Luther, Crotus Rubianus, calling him the most holy high priest, the most evangelical being that the heavenly powers had given to this degenerate age and proffering him his unqualified devotion and cooperation. As to those people of Cologne who had burnt Luther's books, Crotus said that in doing so they had burnt the gospel of Christ, or rather, Christ himself. Luther thought very highly of himself, which is fully manifest in his decrees concerning salvation and the Protestant cause. But his already inflated ego appears to have been greatly fueled by his humanist sycophants, especially by Hutton and Curtis Rubianus, anyway. Five days later, Luther, in his character of new evangelist, convoked the professors and students of Wittenberg outside of the Elster Gate. And in their presence, he burnt the papal bull and the books of the canon law, saying as he did so, because thou hast destroyed the Holy One of the Lord, therefore I destroy thee in everlasting fire. And then he invoked the name of the Apostle Paul, who had burnt the books of the sorcerers. This deed of Luther's, the like of which had never before been heard of in all Christendom, says the Bernice chronicler Anselm, had caused great surprise and indignation. The following day, Luther declared to his audience in the university that this bonfire was only a trifle. It was imperative to burn the Pope himself, that is to say, the papal chair. Whoever did not, with all his heart, struggle against papacy could not attain salvation. The clearness and the beauty of his fatherly address and eyewitness assures us were so convincing that one must have been more senseless than a stick not to perceive that all that Luther said was gospel truth and he himself an angel of the living God called by him to feed his erring sheep with the words of truth. Here we could say that Martin Luther has single-handedly, not really because he had Hutton doing it as well, but he had single-handedly declared war on Rome. While the struggle will be long and not always triumphant, eventually he will prevail to one degree or another. He may have been a man of great ego, but this act certainly also took great courage. After the year 1520, Luther's Latin and German publications were frequently accompanied by a woodcut in which he was represented with a glory around his head, like they did of the saints, or with the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove hovering over him. Among the populace, it was rumored that in Wittenberg, while Luther was burning the papal decretals in bulls, angels had been seen up in the clouds, 
looking on with approval at the spectacle. And here the author refers primarily to the works of a humanist artist and a painter of many of these notable figures of the Reformation, who was named Lucas Cronach. In a letter which recounts this popular rumor, we read that Luther holds out the threat that seven provinces had sworn to support him, that the Bohemians had promised him 35,000 men, and the Saxons and other tribes of the north as many more, in order to invade Italy and Rome after the example of the Goths and Vandals. The poison has gone so deep, this letter goes on to say, that it can scarcely be got rid of without great suffering of all sorts. For all classes of Germans were opposed to the clerical orders, and whose hearts are set on plunder. Look upon Luther's scheme as an opportunity for demolishing the hated and opulent race of ecclesiastics and for turning everything upside down. Not all Luther's friends, however, concurred in these violent measures. Wolfgang Capito, court preacher to the Archbishop of Mainz, warned Luther to Albrecht, warned Luther on December 4th against exciting the people to fury. You are frightening your supporters away from you, he wrote, by your constant reference to troops and arms. We can easily enough throw everything into confusion, but it will not be in our power, believe me, to restore things to peace and order. Besides, the people were by no means to be relied on. Experience teaches how easily the masses are moved. Today, they are all for us. Tomorrow, all against us. The court preacher was not a little alarmed at Luther's having so often sounded a trumpet note of war and incited Hutton to battle, and at his expressed intention of soon making an attempt with arms. Earlier in this series of presentations, we saw the opulent and lascivious lifestyle of the Archbishop of Mainz, but he was not alone. He was only a chief example. Here Luther seems to call for the total destruction of the priesthood, but not even Hutton, in his latest diatribes at least, had called for the destruction of the priests. The priestly class in medieval Europe certainly lived as well, or sometimes better, than the nobles themselves. But often, the bishops and other high-ranking priests were scions of the noble families. This Albert of Mainz was actually a Hohenzollern. He was of the royal house of Prussia. The second and third sons of the noble families had no chance at inheriting the titles and estates of the family, of their fathers. So often the clerical life was chosen and they became bishops or other officers of the church and they lived just as well as the nobles. 
We read on page 138. According to Hutton's plan, the war of religion was to begin in this very year, 1520. And we have to remark that the first real war from this time, the first real war of the Lutheran Reformation did not happen until 1524, and we hope to discuss it here in the near future. On December 9th of this year, Hutton communicated to his dearest brother and friend Luther, to the invincible herald of the divine word, a more detailed account of his progress. While I am gaining new adherents and supporters, he writes, old ones fall away. So deep-rooted and widespread is still the superstition that whoever rises against the Pope commits an unpardonable sin. Franz Sickingen is the only one who stands by us with unswerving loyalty, and even Sickingen had almost begun to waver, but he, Hutton, had so fed his enthusiasm that now scarcely a day passed without his having something from Luther's or Hutton's writings read out to him at supper. To all friends who tried to dissuade him, from supporting Luther, Sickingen had represented that the welfare of the fatherland required that Luther's and Hutton's counsels should be listened to and the true faith defended. Meanwhile, Hutton goes on, I do not conceal from you, dearest brother, that Franz has hitherto restrained me from active measures against our enemies in order to lead them on to greater presumption. Moreover, he considers it advisable to await what the emperor shall decide. They still haven't gotten an official answer from Charles V. Sickingen hopes, he says, that the emperor will realize what is to be expected from the pope and his following. A great split between the pope and the emperor is predicted, and Sickingen will appeal to the emperor at the proper moment. I have just written to Spalatin asking him to sound the elector, to sound the elector, Frederick III, the elector of Saxony, as to his intentions and to inform me of them as far as he can. I want to know, for instance, how far we may reckon on his protection. And I should like this to be known only to you, but also to all who will help us with their swords. Do you too, I beg you, you. I beg of you, insist on this. You have no idea how immensely serviceable to our cause it would be that the elector should either aid those who have taken up arms or should at least be willing to connive at our enterprise so far as to allow us to take refuge in his territory if the state of affairs should make it necessary. And while Hutton was dead, that's exactly what Martin Luther had to do. As soon as I have got this information, I think of coming to you in person, for I can, I can no longer put off seeing face-to-face -face a man I so greatly admire for his virtues. With this letter, Hutton sent Luther his latest poetical writing in the hope that he would have them published at Wittenberg. And these verses, destined for the people and therefore written in the German language, he urges an armed uprising of the nation against the papacy and the clergy. 
Now, we will refrain from reading Hutton's poetry here and only remark that his short verses were meant to incite the patriotic spirit in common people and unite them with the noble class in what was characterized as a fight for the German fatherland. He characterized the Roman Church as an institution of superstition which was contrary to scriptural truth. He lamented that there could be no peaceful settlement and that war was absolutely necessary for Germany to return to a true faith in God. To continue with page 140 of our source, in another pamphlet, he presumed to instruct the Emperor Charles in his duties and privileges with regard to Rome. As an imperial papist, he said that the emperors formerly, before they became subject to the Pope, had had the power of appointing and deposing the Christian bishops. The despotic Henry Fort, he said, was a hero in his eyes, although not born in German land. But the greater his valor, spirit, and virtue, the more he had to suffer persecution from the popes. For as soon as they began to recognize his great courage and ability, they set themselves against him to prevent his rising up over their heads. And this is not the case of one or two popes only, but with four or five of them, amongst whom, however, that execrable monk by the name Hildebrand, pressed him most sorely. And this reference of Hutton's is to the 11th century German king and the monk who became known as Pope Gregory VII. The main focus of the struggle between them was the investiture controversy, which was whether the right to appoint bishops and other local church leaders lay with the kings or with the popes. In 1122, it was settled at Varnes, mostly in favor of the popes, whereby the power of the Holy Roman Emperor was greatly diminished in favor of the pope. Other such controversies had occurred both elsewhere and earlier. So the, the power that the popes had in the 16th century it wasn't taken for granted that they had that power in the 12th century. And they certainly did not have that power in the earlier centuries. They did not have that power, as we shall see, in the 10th century. Our author says that Hutton's historical knowledge was most extraordinary. In proof of the rights, I think he's just putting it mildly and really criticizing Hutton because Hutton twists history here. In proof of the rights that former emperors had exercised against the popes, he related that the Emperor Otto III had had the Pope John XIV's eyes put out. In proof of the tyranny that popes had been guilty of murdering emperors, he informs his readers that Clement IV had King Conrad IV put to death in these statements it was not found a word of truth. And that is true. Here Hutton was lying, just like Emser lied 
to spin history in favor of the Pope. Hutton's lying to spin history in favor of the Emperor. He's obviously lying for the purposes of propaganda. Otto III was born in 980, and Pope John XIV died in 984 after being imprisoned by the so-called anti-pope Boniface VII. However, Hutton was correct that at this time, the popes were appointed by the emperors. John XIV was appointed by Otto III's father, Otto II, who died, and apparently the court of Otto III, since Otto III was only three years old, was not strong enough to protect him. In the mid-13th century, the German king, Conrad IV, was at war with the Pope, Pope Clement IV. But he died of malaria sometime after invading Italy. He didn't get killed by the Pope. He died of malaria. Even at this time, in the 11th century, in the 10th century, the papacy was only a political tool controlled by whoever was powerful enough to seize it. Returning to page 141 of our source, with a view to feeding the frenzy of the populace, Hutton now published his Latin dialogues in German as Gesprach Buchlein. The morale of them was set forth in a picture on the title page. On the right hand at the top stands King David addressing God the Father, who is depicted on the left hand hurling down lightning with the words of the psalmist, Arise, thou judge of the world, and reward the proud after their deserving. In the middle space, Luther and Hutton appear side by side as the Twin heralds of freedom, of freedom, excuse me. At the bottom of the page, armed warriors with outstretched spears are chasing a crowd of yelling priests who are fleeing in terror, while the Pope, the cardinals, and the bishops are just visible below them. At the end of the book, also, there is a pictorial representation of Luther and Hutton side by side, and it became customary to depict these two together as inseparable instruments of God. Hutton, the pagan humanist, who died of syphilis just a short time after this, in fact. God has sent forth two specially chosen, bold and enlightened messengers, said Everlyn of Gunsberg in his pamphlet, Funsten Bundesgenossen, 15 Confederates, which appeared in 1521. These two messengers are Martin Luther and Ulrich von Hutten. They are both natives of Germany, deeply learned and Christian men who have devoted all their days to the furtherance of God's glory, as is shown by their present insurrection. A litany der Deutschen was circulated in which divine help was asked for on behalf of these two men. And I guess the modern saying that you could put lipstick on a pig is certainly true in Ulrich von Hutten's case as well. 
Hutton, in his writings, gave the impression that he was confident that the emperor would place himself at the head of the contemplated bloody revolution. Here, our author reproduces another panegyric poem by Hutton, which urged on war against the papists and patronizing the Emperor Charles V once again, hopes to encourage him to join the reformers. When we return to our narrative, we will learn that in reality, Hutton's outlook was not so confident. This is where we will leave our account for now with that image of Hutton and Luther standing side by side to conquer the terrible power of the papacy. But we will always have that sneaking suspicion that the Jews were lurking behind the curtains and pulling at least some of the strings. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh and good night.